Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, this last week, I was tired. I don't know if I was just weary from the whole year or what, but I remember telling Catherine, my wife, that, I, like, I'm ready for hibernation. <laughs> and um, maybe it was just because it was snowing again. I don't know. And perhaps I'm not alone in that sort of feeling right now. But I was reminded from Psalm 46 this week that God is our refuge and our strength, that when I'm done, he's not. And that is very good news. You know, today in our text, we're going we're gonna to catch up with Paul and his um, missionary companion, Silas, and we're going to see them run up against the sort of situation where they might just want to throw up their hands as well and say, I'm done. But they're drawing on something so much deeper than themselves as well. So let's dig into that together, but let's just pray as we begin. Father God, we're so thankful to be able to hear from uh, the early church and how you were working in their midst. And we pray now that you would be speaking to our hearts through this text. Amen. Now, last week, we, uh, we finished up in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. And, and here, uh, Paul and Silas, then from, from this spot, they take a trip and they end up in Philippi. The Spirit uh, prevents them from going somewhere they wanted to, and then in a vision Paul receives, there's someone from Macedonia. That's this area between sort of modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece, the kind of land bridge above there, and says, come and help us. And so they do. They're led by the Spirit. They end up in this Roman colony, this uh, city called Philippi. And here they begin to they begin to preach. They find a place by a river where people are meeting. It's a place of prayer. And they begin to, to, to explain the good news of Jesus. And, and there, there's a woman named Lydia. We, we read that she's a businesswoman in the city. And she hears the gospel. And we were told that, this is verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, now this reminds us, I think, about how God works, sort of the, the theological nature of how people come to respond to faith in, in, in Jesus, that this is something that, yes, we make a decision about, but there's more going on here as well. God is at work in people's hearts. It's not one or the other, it's both and. And this is why we seek for those of us who are believers like myself, when I seek to make the good news of Jesus known to others, I do my best to do my part, but then I trust that ultimately it's God who does God's work in someone else's life. In someone else's life, the results are ultimately up to God. You know, Craig Keener is one of the most prolific uh, biblical scholars and authors of our day. And, and he tells the story of how he came to faith from being a hardened atheist, even from his like childhood and youth, to a place of trust in Jesus. And in telling his story, he, he mentions how his family on his dad's side had actually been praying for him and the rest of his family as well, unbeknownst to him. So here's how he tells the story, and I quote, One day when I was walking home from school, a couple of students from a fundamentalist Bible college cornered me and asked if I knew where I would go when I died. I argued with them for 45 minutes as they tried to explain about Jesus' death and resurrection, bringing salvation, something that made no sense to me. 
Finally, I hit them with what I thought was the ultimate question. If there's a God, where do the dinosaur bones come from? If one asks a stupid question, one usually gets a stupid answer. They reply that the devil put them there. I was so annoyed that I started to walk off and they warned me that if I kept hardening my heart against God, I would end up in hell. Although I tried to shake off their words, I found myself terrified the entire way home. Despite the weakness of their paleontology, i.e. the nonsense about the devil planting dinosaur bones, they spoke to me the truth about Jesus. I had wanted God to give me empirical evidence, but instead God confronted me with the reality of God's own presence. I had studied various religions and philosophies in the encyclopedia, but what I was experiencing now was on a completely different level. As I got to my room, I was so overwhelmed by God's presence and the demand it made on my life that I felt only two options. I had to either accept or reject the demand of my creator. And God was not going to let me alone until I did one or the other. My knees buckled from under me and I cried out, God, I don't understand how Jesus dying and rising from the dead can save me. But if that's what you are saying, I'll believe it. But God, I don't know how to be saved. So I want you to save me. If you want to save me, he said, pardon me, you're going to have to do it yourself. Suddenly, I felt something rushing through my body like I never had felt before. Indeed, it frightened me. I didn't understand what had just happened, but I knew that God was real and that I must now give God everything. And I was, uh, everything I was and everything I had. Now, I, I love Craig's story because he's an incredible thinker. He is a, an intellectual and a, and a writer, but he also experienced this, well, what we see in this passage with Lydia, the Lord opens hearts. And I love this story as well because even if we have some pretty flawed ideas like these Bible school students did about the dinosaur bones, I mean, that part's kind of funny, God still can and does work in and through our witness to other people. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we have the joy of being a part of God's mission in the world. Now, no, not, not everybody is a gifted evangelist, but all of us have the ability to tell our story and to connect it to what Jesus did in real time and space. And to express the reality of God's love with our friends, our, co our co-workers and neighbors, and all of us can pray. So that's just the first take home, really, there is a God dynamic at play when someone comes to know Jesus personally. This is why prayer and trust in Jesus for his work in someone's heart, that's what it's all about. The Lord opened her heart. I think that's true whenever somebody trusts in Jesus. Again, there's this real decision each of us has to make with regard to the message, but God is also involved in the process of helping us hear and respond. Not one or the other, both and. Now let's continue. Paul and Silas, they're continuing their ministry in that city, and they'd been met by a girl who we read was a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by being a fortune teller. Now we read that she actually follows Paul and Silas around for days, and she's saying this. This is verse six, 17, pardon me. 
These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. But then we go on to read how Paul, he gets so distressed, so grieved by what he sees happening with this young girl that he turns around and says to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her, we read. And as you can imagine, the slave owners are not impressed. Seeing his chance of profiting from her cast out with the evil spirit, the the slave owners, they now drag Paul and Silas before the city magistrates. And here's what they say. These men are Jews. And in this context, we have to understand there is a deep anti-Jewish prejudice. There is racial bigotry toward Jewish people in this setting. And they're going to experience this. These men are Jews. That's that's a, a racially loaded statement they're making. And throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and to practice. Now, the charge of advocating customs unlawful for Romans, that's really interesting. First, again, by saying us Romans, they are drawing on the racial prejudices against Jews to leverage their point. They're clever enough to conceal the real reason for their anger, which is, well, it's economic, actually. And so they're fueling their charges by throwing um, their racial pride and and bigotry on top of the situation. Now, this charge is about advocating customs that are unlawful. It's a serious accusation. For faith practices in the Roman world, they had to be sanctioned. And if they weren't, well, you weren't really treated kindly because that could threaten the stability of Roman life, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And more, the Edict of Claudius had just expelled a group, basically all of the Jewish people from the city of Rome after there was a fire. They were scapegoated. They were blamed for the fire. And so that's kind of the context. Um, Politically, it's a sensitive moment. And any disturbance, especially if it's linked up with Jewish people, boy, the the magistrates are taking that really seriously. So I think William Larkin, though, I think he pegs it. This is a scholar who writes this about it. In the exorcism of the slave girl, exorcism being the spirit, evil spirit cast out of her, Paul has demonstrated the superiority of Jesus to Caesar's God. To proclaim the way of salvation in the name based on the authority that of that same Jesus was indeed to urge new customs upon the Romans that necessarily entailed disloyalty to Rome. What's he saying there? Well, basically, the charge that they're upsetting Roman customs is, well, it's at least in part true. At least in the context where in the Roman world, the worship of false gods, Caesar's God, was uh, highlighted. And so, this is a partially true critique. But let's see the outcome of it. Let's pick up here. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods after they had been severely flogged. And just pausing over that, they really received an incredibly painful flogging here, and unjustly. It says this, after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet 
in stocks. Here we find that they, broken and beaten outwardly, while they still have this wellspring of joy, nonetheless. Listen to verse 25. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Two things. One, somehow they find what seems to be real joy in the midst of real pain. They worship in the middle of a mess. Why? Well, I think because unlike what is often sort of falsely believed in in our time, this notion that God's blessing somehow means comfort and the absence of conflict or pain, no, they know that suffering with and for Christ is actually part and parcel of the Christian life. It doesn't mean that they are enjoying the pain, not at all. This isn't masochism, but it is drawing near to Christ, even when it hurts. And and for us, maybe it's particularly when we're in pain that we need to press into prayer and to praise. And in doing so, we actually remind our hearts of who we are in Christ. Two, praise in the midst of suffering becomes a witness in itself. See, what we do with our pain, how we respond to our losses and sorrow and sickness, that in itself is a part of our witness. Uh, Pastor and scholar John Stott, he says it well. He says, it's wonderful that in such pain, with lacerated backs and aching limbs, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Not groans, but songs come from their mouth. Instead of cursing men, they bless God. No wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. See, it's often how we respond in the midst of our suffering that the light of the gospel, it kind of shines through the cracks in our own brokenness and to light Uh, to be a light to other people. Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, but we have this treasure, and the treasure he's speaking of is the, the message of the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Think about weak and often broken bodies he's speaking of and lives. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, I'm not saying this means being sort of stoic or particularly brave, nor do I mean um, playing down the pain, not at all. Christians are not stronger than other people. But a Christian can have a focus and a a, a hope that, that others simply don't. That enables us to reframe what we're seeing with an eye to the future, to the glory that God has for us. And that changes actually how we live in the middle of the pain and in the present. This shows up when we choose not to retaliate if it was someone else who caused us pain, nor to harbor bitterness and let that grow into something and and, and spill out, but rather to sow seeds of grace and kindness, to be filled with a forgiving spirit. It shows up when we offer praise to God even when we can't see the why in any of it. And the little that we can see is blurred by real, honest, hot tears. So maybe our our take-home is 
is just to see again that how Paul and Silas respond, not in cursing men who caused their real pain, but in praise of God who loves them through it all. May we see that our faith response to our suffering also gains the attention of those around us, and it speaks to the hope that we have, even in the middle of our suffering. And so now we pick up here, and that night, while they're singing, there's an earthquake in the prison, and it tells us that all of their chains and shackles fall off, and the jailer in the dark doesn't know what's going on, and so it says that he's about to take his own life. And that's perhaps because of uh, living in an honor-shame culture. This would bring deep shame onto him and his family, and he would rather lose his life than lose that honor. And possibly because he himself would face execution if his prisoners escaped. But we see this. Paul stops him. He says, we're all here, he shouts. And at that, the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? Here's their response. Believe. That means like trust fully, wholly, entirely. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. And then we read that he and his whole household, after hearing the word of the Lord, they do respond in faith to what they hear about Jesus. They place their trust in him. And then verse 33, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Now, there's this beautiful picture that emerges if we just stop and try to picture it. Paul and Silas, they're beaten and bloodied. And now they're taken in by this new believer and their wounds are carefully and gently washed and dealt with in tenderness. But then the washing doesn't stop. The washing is actually reciprocal John Chrysostom is a fourth century pastor, and he says it like this. He, meaning the jailer, washes them and was washed. Those he washed from their stripes, speaking of Paul and Silas, himself was washed from his sins. He's talking about their baptism. The jailer is washing them of their wounds, and then they, in turn, will wash him in the waters of baptism a signal that he really has received the cleansing work of Jesus. Then verse 34, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. I love that line. He was filled with joy. This man who was just hours ago ready to take his own life to preserve his dignity, now he experiences this entirely new way of perceiving life. And if you haven't come to experience that yourself too, you can turn in trust like we read of Greg or Craig Keener at the beginning of our message or, or like Lydia earlier in the, in the text or like the Philippian jailer here by simply trusting in Jesus, what he's done, and then following him. Let's pick up now on verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and, your, and Silas be released. Now, 
You can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officer reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Well, why the alarm? (laughs) Because it was illegal to beat and imprison a Roman citizen without a fair trial. And we might consider then, why, why don't Paul and Silas, before they're beaten, before they're thrown in jail, why don't they appeal to their citizenship at that point? Well, some have suggested that, I mean, this is just mob justice going on, so they really couldn't. They didn't have an opportunity. That could be the case. I don't know about that, though. I think it would have been easy enough for them to speak up and make that claim. I think Eckhart Schnabel is a scholar. I think he probably has it right. Let me summarize three of his points. First, he says, such an appeal to their citizenship would have caused them legal complications and unwanted delays. At that point in the story, it would have delayed them. It would have been legally complicated. But more than that, too, Paul wants to continue his ministry to Jewish people in synagogues. Whenever Paul enters a city, He doesn't start with the Gentiles. He goes to the Jewish people first and he presents the gospel to them in the synagogue. But here's the issue. You see, his accusers had linked their charges with anti-Jewish sentiments. And so if he appealed at that point to his Roman citizenship, it could have been interpreted negatively on his Jewish identity and, would, and that would have been really highly public. It would have probably stopped his ease of entrance and given the microphone, you could say, at the next synagogue he appeared at. So it would impact his ministry to Jewish people had he appealed at that point to his Roman citizenship. Third, if Paul at that point had appealed to his citizenship, it would have implied an endorsement of the Roman system Uh, of law, which had roots in the religious systems as well. It would have put his proclamation of the gospel with Jesus, Israel's Messiah, as Lord and King and Savior. It would have put that message at risk. So he makes a calculated decision when to make that appeal and when not to. Let's look at the result. Verse 39, they came to appease them. And escort them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house. That's where the new church is formed. Where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. So we're left with that really interesting question. About why and when Paul and Silas do draw on their rights as Roman citizens. And I think it's actually something that connects with our moment in a Pretty significant way, actually. See, by making this appeal to their citizenship at this point, they accomplish two major things. Number one, they protect the church, or they at least provide an initial covering of protection for this young set of believers in Philippi. If it was calculated not to assert their citizenship initially in order to protect the mission even at great expense to themselves, now they have calculated the gains it will have for that young community 
in Philippi. They were wise in their relationship with the state. See, they're seeking to provide the best sense uh, for that new community to get established um, and then to be able for that new community to share the gospel without having like an extra measure of scrutiny and harassment from the city officials. Now, I think it would be fair to say that we live in a fairly rights-driven moment. Asserting personal individual rights is, is part and parcel of cultural North American life. And Paul has lots to say, actually, about how we're to hold our personal rights, especially in the way it might impact other people, even their consciences. We saw last week in Acts chapter 15, uh, where the Jerusalem Council meets, and they conclude that Gentile believers, they don't need to follow the law of Moses in order to belong to the people of God, to be saved. But James concludes by pointing that they would do well to avoid as he puts it in 1529, four things. And we looked at that in detail last week. You can go back and listen. But he specifically points to areas of the Mosaic law that would cause division within the church between Jews and Gentile believers, especially when they would sit down to eat a meal together. So he's giving them these, this set of uh, guidelines not so that if you keep these, you'll be saved. If you don't, you won't. No, not at all. He's doing it for the sake of the unity of that community. That they would make decisions that foster closeness, even if it costs them a level of freedom. Paul then actually will pick up this same argument when he writes his letter to the Roman church in chapters 14 and 15. See, he wants to help that church experience a deep sense of unity and love for one another, especially in light of the fact that there are non-essential issues that not everyone in the church agrees upon. They might have had deeply held convictions about certain things, and Paul wants to pastor and help them work through that as a church. So what does he instruct? Well, very briefly, I want to show you a few things. Especially these come up in relation there to, like, do you eat meat or not? Uh, what about the days that we gather are certain days more sacred than others? Or how about this one? What about the use of, of alcohol? What do you do with that? And so he actually brings up those three points, but then gives us these uh, ways of living them out. Here's what he concludes. Each person can hold convictions on disputable or non-essential matters. But whatever you decide, here's what Paul says. This is 1422. Keep these things between yourself and God. And so number one, Christian freedom must never be flaunted. Here's how one author, I think, wisely puts it. The subtle truth is that the Christian who has to exercise his or her liberty is in bondage to that, to that very thing he or she insists on doing. Says Paul, if the kingdom consists for you in food, drink, and the like, you have missed the point of the gospel and the freedom of the Spirit. Second, Christian freedom must not become a stumbling block to other believers. You see, the freedom that we have in Christ can be enjoyed, but when we use it to the detriment of others, uh, that's just totally out. Here's what Paul actually goes this far in 1 Corinthians 8, 13. He's speaking again about those issues around table fellowship and like the meat that's being served, has it been offered to idols or not? And he says this, 
He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. (laughs) It's prioritizing what the other needs, even at the sake of your own freedom. And that really connects maybe to the most significant point here. Number three, Christian freedom takes a second seat to loving others like Jesus does. Look at Romans 15, 2 and 3. Paul says this, Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. With the master, Jesus, so with his servants, those who follow him, we're to follow the same pattern of life. Again, Sinclair Ferguson, there is something devastatingly simple about this. It reduces the issue to the basic question of love for the Lord Jesus Christ and a desire to imitate him since his spirit indwells us to make us more like him. Indeed, it is devastatingly simple. Paul and Silas, they don't claim their rights for the sake of personal vindication. I was right. Admit it. It's not what they're doing here, folks. They're doing this for the sake of their community so that they won't attract the same level of harassment from city officials that they had to go through. This is about the protection of that community, and it's about mission. See, notice, Paul and Silas, they go back to the home of Lydia, no doubt, it says, to encourage the believers, encourage them also to stand firm in the faith so they can further the mission of Jesus in that city, even when it's costly. And when you read the book of Philippians, you'll find out it was costly. So their appeal to their citizenship isn't about Paul and Silas. It's not about their personal rights. It's about showing that there is no legitimate legal leg for the magistrate to stand on. And thus they add initial protection for that church to begin the good work God has for them in the city. Second thing is that their appeal at this point preserves the integrity of their mission. By only drawing on their citizenship after their initial beating and imprisonment, they are then able to travel to the new cities and begin to preach in Jewish synagogues. And that's what we see in the next chapters. But just note, their approach to when and how they draw on their rights as citizens It's not about their individual rights, but it's about A, the health and vitality of the church, and B, the ongoing mission of the church in the world. I think there's some features that we really need to draw on as a community in this time about how we can love one another in the midst of a pandemic and, and how we work with government regulations even. See, we live in a moment where it seems that every response to COVID-19 seems to be politicized. Just Google like mask wearing and church and then break out some popcorn and be ready for a wild ride because it is wild times out there, folks. There are, of course, thousands of discussions and articles about the overlap of civil liberties and religious freedoms. And that's true in Canada as well. And it's understandable Since governments do have a role in providing a context for the health and vitality of a society, 
Yes, of course, there's differing views about how much of a role a government ought to play in questions like this, of course. And that's one of the areas of political divergence that we see. I understand that. But the question we do have to wrestle with is how we make decisions as a church community about how we respond for the health and vitality of the church and the mission of God that he's given us in our city. And this brings us to what would be the best we can do to have a faithful, loving, Jesus-following, biblically-based response, to do our best to discern what that looks like in so many challenges that we face. And especially that we're told to hold our convictions the way we're instructed, that we don't go on to please ourselves, but like Master Jesus, to please our neighbor, look out for their interests even ahead of my own. We are told in the Bible to respect our government. Or as we read in 1 Peter 2.17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And remembering this emperor was exceptionally anti-Christian at this point in history. The command remains, however. So whatever you think of our present government, and the job that they're doing, this word remains our call, even our duty as believers. And we also remember that the, the structures of authority in government are also God-given. They're there to provide a level of order to any society, as we read in Romans chapter 13. It doesn't mean we agree with the government about everything, but we understand that, that the authority structure has been put there by God himself. And again, remembering that Paul is speaking in the context where the rulers were less than friendly to believers. You know, I think it's worth pointing out that our current health authorities in BC, they're working hard to try and make provision for faith communities. I don't know if you know this, but um, I've been able to be on three different conference calls with Bonnie Henry uh, and the health minister and ask directly questions about our faith community. And there was listening and they were note-taking, and they were working to try to do the best they could for faith communities. In fact, in the lower mainland right now, where there's been um, much, much greater restrictions among gyms and, and other kind of community events, the exception that they did make was for faith communities, for churches can still gather to worship. And I think we can all appreciate that. The question then is, how do we model the same kind of uh, care for people in our community to encourage each other, to honor each other. For those, I think, who've said yes to following Jesus, the question is, what does a gospel-shaped response to this pandemic moment look like? How do we live in faithfulness to God, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, love our neighbors in our city, and faithfulness to the mission of God? Uh, just two thoughts to close. Number one, we, we realize that Christians do not ultimately fear death. But we're also not to be hastening its day for us or others. We are pro-life, you might say, because Jesus is the Lord and author of life, and we need to respect the life he gives. We know that our future is secure in the hands of God who raised his son Jesus from the dead and will raise us up as well. But that doesn't mean we play fast and loose with a deadly disease. I know there's disagreements about morbidity rates, etc. 
But for the Christian person, we are bound to honor others, even if we disagree with the guidelines. The second thing I want to point out is our culture does, by and large, fear death. Because there is, for those who haven't trusted Jesus, there is no hope for life after this life. And so our call, for those of you who are listening who are Christian people, our call is to witness to the Lord of life. And that includes maintaining a good reputation in our community by promoting the good of our city and a winsome approach to everyone. We're told, remember, respect everyone. That's how Peter puts it. And that's what we're going to do. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, and it, he's talking about his freedom and his, his rights in Christ, you might say. And he talks about how he limits it for the sake of others. Here's what he writes. Though I am free... I belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. You see how he treats his freedom there? And then jumping to verse 22, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. This means we do show due respect for those around us. Maybe it's in that area of like wearing a mask wherever that's required, even if you do think it's daft. Because you know it's not about you. Just like Paul says, it's not about me. It's about loving those around me. It's about the sake of the mission. Pastor Russ pointed out after reading this message, just that key point, he says, if we, if we do what Jesus has commanded us, to love God as our first and best and love our neighbor as ourself, well, it's not even a question about wearing a mask. That's a simple one to answer. For remember, Jesus did not please himself. And God owes us nothing. We indeed, I think, have forfeited our rights on account of our sin. See, as Paul says that the wages of sin is death death. That's all that God owes me. But praise be to God that in love, he makes a way to win us back. Separation from him, that is not what the Lord of life wanted for you or for me. And Jesus is the only one who has not forfeited his rights on account of the fact that he never sinned. And yet, he willingly put aside all of his rights poured out his life to win us back. And then he says to us, follow me. And that includes that same pattern of life for the sake of others, poured out for them. And so let's be open to every way that he calls us to join the pattern of life, the way that he lived it for the sake of others. Amen. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you for this particular text. I, I thank you for the decision-making um, uh, pathways and logic and the theological reasoning that Paul and Silas show in this text. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to love like you love, to seek the best for others, to be those who are willing to share our story of how you've changed us so that others might come to know the Lord of life as well. And Lord, that maybe even gets demonstrated particularly in how we deal with suffering. And so, Lord, for those who are suffering, may they experience your grace in this time now. And we ask, God, that you would use us as your people to bring glory and honor to your name and joy to our hearts as we do it. Amen.